Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Claire Zauke is on vacation this week, and we have a special guest panelist with us. It is Toby Chow. Toby is the Director of Justices Global, which is a project at People's Action, our national network. Toby, great to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And as always, Robert Craig, our executive director here at Citizen Action, is with us. Robert, good to have you. Good to be here with both of you, as always. And it's fantastic to have uh, Toby on, as I think the listeners will soon find out. But I can just tell you that this is, this is a great guest. And he and I are both on the uh, board of Indies Times Magazine as well, in addition to our People's Action Connection. Yeah, we're really excited uh, to have Toby on. Toby, we're going to talk a lot more about the relationship uh, between the United States and China and quite frankly, the scapegoating that's going on. And, and we're going to dive into that for at least three segments, but uh, we asked Toby to come on. He agreed to come on early and uh, sit in on our first uh, 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 section where we're going to do a little conversation first about the latest news that's been going on here in Wisconsin and more broadly as it relates to COVID-19. Uh, Robert, um, you know, we have been, talking endlessly about the absolutely critical importance of making sure everybody who does not have access to health care right now is insured. We think we need to open up Badger Care right now to the uninsured, but we have been all over the idea that there absolutely needs to be free testing and treatment in order for folks uh, to, act, to, to, to go and receive the tests in order to open up. And uh, we have commented that we've noticed that a lot of the free testing that's being opened up uh, by the National Guard is being swamped. And this week, Robert, we're seeing the latest news. We're hitting records now for testing positive and deaths. Just want to obviously give us an update on sort of from the public health side here. The pandemic, as expected, is not dying down in Wisconsin. We had a record number of cases yesterday, and we've had other such spikes that were close in the last week and a half. We have a record number of hospitalizations as well. And so this is not good, and it's not just because we're testing more. And we're testing more. Governor Evers is to be commended for taking over a billion dollars of the federal CARES money put into testing. So relative to other states, if you want to say we're, you know, slightly above average, sure. But that's in a situation where all the states are failing because the federal government's not doing its job. Disaster relief is done by the federal government. And this idea coming from the far right uh, and Donald Trump that it's on the states, well, if that's the case, you have to give the states the federal revenue because the states are strangled for revenue. So you can't have a federalist system that says national pandemic response is on the states, but hey, we're keeping all the money is not a workable response. And by the way, they've done no planning. It's the federal government that was supposed to. And the latest revelations, there'll be hearings today um, in Congress, is, is that the Trump administration scuttled rules uh, that, uh, that the Obama administration developed that would have required all hospitals to have sufficient stockpiles of PPE for a pandemic. So the lack of protective gear is not only because of their Trump's malfeasance and refusal to act early, but they literally scuttled the regulations and they have uh, Trump on tape on National Public Radio bragging about how removing red tape is such a good thing and he's freeing America. Well, this is what their freedom looks like. So that's one thing. But Matt, we know the playbook's out there. I won't repeat the whole thing. We've done it multiple times. Other countries, 
with fewer resources than we have are controlling the pandemic without a vaccine. There may not be a vaccine ever or for years, just so folks know. So this may be the new normal is massive testing, massive contact tracing, which requires a massive workforce, one that could improve equity, improve employment, and the ability to figure out exactly where any infections, outbreaks are coming so you isolate them locally. So the choices are three. I uh, shut down the whole economy, which you can't do perfectly well because that's like a complete quarantine, right? And that is not going to work and, and even have an economy. Uh, to be, have this capacity so we can find it and control it where it is very quickly and prevent it from spreading or just send people back and, uh, and, and allow the death toll to happen. Uh, and it, and have it destroy the economy. That seems to be the bot, the curtain. If it's uh, let's make a deal uh, game show that Donald Trump has selected, and the reason free testing and treatment and healthcare coverage is important is because the other countries that have controlled this, they have universal healthcare systems where cost is not a barrier. Okay, and so no one's thinking carefully about that. Even Congress, the Heroes Act doesn't have it. Pramila Jayapal's excellent bill on it is being ignored by most Democrats. And in the state, as we pointed out, the state with emergency powers could do it uh, with the combination of opening up Badger Care, uh, taking the Medicaid expansion, and putting strong mandates on private insurance that will be no co-pays or deductibles on testing or treatment, and it will be enforced, right? That would be what you have to do. A state could do it, but it would require the cooperation of guess who? The legislature, which they, of course, have gone home from a permanent vacation, it appears, until January and left the pandemic to an under-resourced Evers administration. So obviously the the fallout of this uh, we're really now seeing in terms of what's happening to people. And we've talked every week at this time. We give the latest updates on the unemployment numbers that were announced this morning, and we're another 2 million plus uh, filed last week. We're at over, I believe we're at 40 million now since this began. And what's been happening here in Wisconsin, and Toby, I don't know if this has been happening in Illinois or other places, but we are having an absolutely, our, our, our UI system is is just ground to a halt. We have close to three quarters of a million uh, folks here in Wisconsin who have filed and not uh, received any. I can I can tell you my son is one of them uh, who got to spend a couple hours on the phone yesterday to be told, well, you know, it's it's with the adjuster. <laughs> uh, and and uh, uh, wait, wait more. So uh, this system, right, is, is crippling people economically already. And then to have this go, uh, yeah, you're going to go get a test or go get treatment when you are broke, Robert um, or Toby, any, Toby, I don't know if this issue we've been having here in Wisconsin with unemployment, is that happening? You, you live in Chicago. How is Illinois handling this, is this particular issue? Because these systems were not meant to handle this kind of caseload. I know that uh, last month, uh, the state created these new systems, like new call centers to, in an attempt to uh, handle this increased uh, load of, of people calling in um, and trying to uh, file for unemployment. Um, I'm not sure how it's it's gone, but yeah, definitely the system was not uh, set up to handle um, this enormous number of, of people um, seeking for help. Apparently, Toby, here in Wisconsin, we now have we have a system that is like 30 or 40 years old. They described it as a computer system from the 1950s. Robert, I I know this is this is unbelievable, but this is this is only adding further pain and um, 
unnecessary, quite frankly, Robert. Yeah, and this is where it becomes bipartisan. I mean, that means the Doyle administration didn't do anything about it for eight years. And I don't remember, maybe I'm wrong, Tony Evers making bold uh, proposals in his budget. I remember back to my earliest days of, like, I guess, higher level political involvement. I was on a major commission on student financial aid for four years in Washington. I was in graduate school, so I only traveled for meetings, you know, once a quarter or or so, maybe once every two months. Anyway, uh, the Department of Education had a legacy computer system like this. Clinton administration wouldn't replace it. They just kept paying contractors, and there was a limited supply, huge amounts to retrofit this ancient system that started being built in the 1960s. And so uh, the problem is the Republicans pulled a nice little fast one where they, rather than simply doing what Europe does and took over the payroll systems of companies to keep people employed, which they could have done, going through the underfunded state UI system so they could show their ideology that government doesn't work. And Democrats, by uh, being by mainline Democrats, by playing into austerity, actually played into their hands. And so that's what we're seeing here. And I think Governor Evers in this and other areas should actually say what is required and ask for it and let them say no, rather than say, oh, we're working on it. We're trying to hire more staff, blah, blah, blah. It's terrible. We, Robert, we brought this up almost every week. I think this is sort of a fundamental disagreement we have. We believe that the party and uh Democrats need to have a vision that they lay out that they know um, isn't necessarily going to pass, but at least speaks to what it actually would cost or what it would take to do what we need to do. And just to be honest, in the pandemic absolutely demands that. And just a little more candor about the system uh, would have been useful had we known that. Because um, we need government to function if it's going to achieve I, big dreams and goals that we have. And we need to be responsible for trying to be honest about where it's working and where it's not, especially in critical issues like What this. am I comparing it to, Matt, is the exploding gas tank, the Chevy Felt uh, Ford Pinto in the 70s. Uh, the GM alternative wasn't a great car. It was a car everyone forgot, the Chevy Vega. And I believe I'm not this not for real. The ads could have said, well, at least it doesn't explode. And so, yeah, the Dem- mainline Democrats are way better than Donald Trump and the Republicans. But can we have a good car? That's exactly why the Japanese were able to take over the market, not because of unfair competition, because our big companies offered crappy cars in the 1970s. So, and 80s. <laughs> so Robert, we're going to we're going to have to take a break. Uh, but before we go, we're. One of the reasons the reason we had Toby on and we're going to get into this when we get back is we've been talking about how, right, this is a public health crisis and we need to respond with public health response. And we just talked about that. But we have been growingly disturbed about the rhetoric that uh, has been going on that has been demonizing China and attempting uh, to sort of blame them. And it fits into a broader problem. Uh, that's going on that we want to talk about with uh, Toby when we get back. Uh, And we're going to talk about that for three segments. But uh, you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are going to now spend some time talking more about the growing problem that we see, uh, first of all, uh, around the U.S. and China relations that has seen Trump 
go from what, let's say last January or this January, uh, talking all positively about some trade deal to now supercharged uh, scapegoating, blaming China for COVID-19. Um, and we're very concerned about what we see in is a possible Democratic or Biden response that is tougher on China. And, and, and we wanted to have uh, Toby Chow on to talk more about this problem since Toby has been thinking about this uh, for years and has been uh, leading people's actions effort to think and organize about this and try, try to create a completely alternative approach that actually leans into a collective response. Uh, Toby, um, give us the top lines of how, what, you're, what you see happening here broadly with our, with our relations and why this is such a critical juncture uh, for, for the U.S.-China relations. And first of all, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I think what, we've, what we're seeing right now is, uh, so first of all, uh, um, we've, we've got this rise, uh, this sharp rise in anti-China sentiment, which is both about uh, people um, increasingly seeing China, the country of China, the government of China, as, as a threat, as an enemy of the United States, um, but closely connected to that is a sharp, sharp rise in anti-Asian racism. Um, uh, so there's one website, Stop AAPI Hate, has uh, in the course of April recorded uh, 1,500 incidents of, uh, of harassment and assault targeting Asians. Uh, so it's just in, in one month. Um, so uh, uh, that has been triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, the fact that it originated in, in China um, sort of inevitably led to widespread racialization of the disease, the identification of the disease uh, with people of, of Chinese descent, which then gets generalized to um, uh, people of other Asian ethnicities as well, because we can't get, a lot of people can't tell us apart. Um, uh, so that's a recurring feature uh, when there are epidemics or pandemics that the disease gets racialized. Uh, but then what we saw from the right and the Republican Party and President Trump was using terms like the Chinese virus and things like that to um, fan the flames of the racialization of that disease uh, to increase this anti-China sentiment uh, and to use that as a political tool um, to serve their interests and, and above all uh, to uh, turn China into a scapegoat um, because Trump can't possibly accept any accountability or responsibility for his uh, catastrophic mishandling of this pandemic, and he needs to do everything he can to, to thrust the blame off of himself and send it somewhere else. And so his target for that is China. So, Toby, we have this situation where you're seeing it get racialized and nationalized. That's actually polarizing uh, relations with China, and China's reacting. And China's not exactly a great player in all of this either. There, as, as I'm sure we'll get into. And so it seems like you would hope, if we had really reconstruct the Democratic Party, that the Democratic Party would come down on the side of inclusion and anti-racism and say tr that Trump is just trying to change the subject and say that we do not need higher international tensions with China. But 
it certainly appears they're trying to double down. And I heard Fareed Zakaria this weekend, of all people, who, as you know, is a very mainline commentator, but at least is, you know, a thoughtful, educated guy, much more than your usual cable host, uh, say that this is like the Democrats in the original Cold War uh, simply being fearful of being out-communisted by the Republicans and uh, and trying to show they were tough on the commies, and that led to things like Vietnam and the refusal to leave Vietnam, among other things. Korea, you can go on and on uh, with all of the atrocities of the Cold War. And so it seems like that might be happening again, and it seems like there's a huge power interest behind it, a military-industrial complex, which we can't really rebuild the country to a climate transition include opportunity as long as they take as much of the economy as they take. And now they'd have a new rationale with a new Cold War, at least a Cold War. could be a hot war with a Donald Trump. And, you know, who knows? If you have a Cold War, you always could have a hot war. We just got lucky the first time with Russia. So what are your thoughts on that concern I have? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we are in a pandemic. And if you look at our us as Americans or us as just the human race, like our urgent needs right now, uh, like what we desperately need is greater, deeper international cooperation between all countries' governments to uh, beat this pandemic and, and get us through it uh, and keep us safe. And absolutely, the U.S. and China need to be cooperating uh, to a much greater scale uh, to get us through this thing. Um, the two top economies need to be working together. Uh, to uh, overcome this crisis. Uh, but instead, uh, what we are seeing, uh, as you say, is um, the, the leaders of both parties competing for the title of who can be uh, tougher on China. Um, and, you know, this reminds me of uh, previous cases of Democrats worrying about, you know, are we tough enough on crime? Are we tough enough on terror? Are we tough enough when it comes to so-called fiscal responsibility? And there's this been, been this recurring theme of trying to outflank Republicans from the right, um, and that has contributed a lot to getting us into the mess that we're in now. Um, it, the military, the interests of the military-industrial complex are playing a huge role here. Uh, before the COVID-19 crisis, uh, the national security establishment, um, figures in both parties, uh, were agitating as hard as they could for increased confrontation with China because they, they are terrified that China may become a threat to the U.S. military's total domination of the entire planet. Um, and they were frustrated because there was not a lot of popular support for increased con confrontation with China. Um, you know, the majority of people uh, in the country are sick of these forever wars that we've been stuck in uh, for decades um, and aren't uh, hungry for yet another confrontation with uh, an even stronger military power. Um, so these military hawks who've been pushing for confrontation with China have been frustrated by this lack of popular support. Uh, but the rise of anti-China sentiment uh, as a result of COVID-19, um, they openly talk about this as an opportunity for their agenda, that they can capture this anti-China sentiment, maybe stoke the fires of it, and use that to build popular support for their agenda, which is absolutely disastrous. Um, you know, not only does it uh, undermine our abilities to cooperate with China, to uh, actually beat this pandemic, but uh, it undermines the potential for international cooperation uh, around uh, future challenges like the climate crisis. We absolutely need U.S.-China cooperation to beat the climate crisis. 
um, and that is also threatened uh, by this escalating uh, U.S.-China conflict. Um, and then, yeah, you add to that um, uh, the risk of, uh, you know, a new Cold War uh, possibly turning into a hot war, the risk of, um, God forbid, nuclear confrontation. Um, uh, it's, it's just absolutely a disastrous path that they're taking us well, let me ask you, because, and I know we, we're about to, we're going to close this segment in a couple minutes, but I, I feel like there's this a kind of uh, lack of concern on some some sectors of the left because Asians are seen sometimes as the exceptional minority that doesn't face supposedly the same sort of bias and racism. And these folks don't haven't thought about the history. The the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which really became an Asian Exclusion Act over time, uh, literally it was it's overshadowed by Jim Crow, but it was in that same vein, and it went on for decades and decades and decades, and really wasn't fixed till the 1960s. And so uh, th- there's a real history of this. And could you say a little bit? And you know, there's a great. PBS documentary on it on the on the Chinese Exclusion Act. If anyone all on the, all on the streaming services, if you don't believe me, it's absolutely eye opening to watch that. And I'd read the history, but seeing it in a documentary in the pictures always helps a lot. Uh, but uh, the sense of how bad this bias is, what Asian Americans, because of course uh, all Asian Americans may get targeted, whether they're Chinese Americans or not. Uh, in this are, are actually experiencing and seeing from the adherence of this ideology out, out, out in our communities. Yeah, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, sort of nonprofits rep- trying to advocate for uh, Asian Americans have uh, set up these uh, reporting systems, and we've seen this huge spike in acts of anti-Asian racism. Um, and uh, it's in, like, you know, I, I will say that it's greatly uh, impacted me. Uh, for the first time, I became nervous uh, just walking outside and passing strangers on the streets of Chicago. Never felt that way in Chicago uh, until this happened. We're going to get back onto this conversation right after this brief break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are joined by Toby Chow from People's Action. We are having a great conversation about the relationship with China and, quite frankly, the scapegoating of China that's been going on in COVID-19. And uh, before we left, we were talking about the the racism that is um, that has always been there but has gotten worse. Toby. Um, could you give us uh, just give us a couple examples of uh, I, I know you, you sent over there's polling and a lot of data that really demonstrates um, that it's gotten worse uh, with Trump with Trump playing into it and scapegoating and like even to the point where we have uh, people believing sort of that white nationalist line that somehow China is more responsible for the spread of COVID in the United States than our own actions are. Um, just give our listeners a flavor for what we were talking about before, really just in, in what you talked about personally yourself for the first time, really feeling this uh, to give people a deeper understanding of um, how attitudes are, are being shaped by this current uh, uh, scapegoating. Yeah. So I've, uh, I've experienced a few incidents uh, myself since uh, COVID-19 started. Uh, 
there was an incident in downtown Chicago in the loop where uh, uh, there's a Chinese woman walking right next to me and, and a guy like jumped out and like started yelling her and then spat directly into her face. Um, th this is a recurring thing, like uh, people spitting into the face of, of folks of Asian descent. There've been a couple of other milder incidents where uh, people saw me walking with a mask and then like jumped out of, jumped away from me. Like um, I'm a huge danger to them. Um, and uh, there've been incidents recorded of like uh, folks of Chinese or other Asian descent uh, getting assaulted, kicked, whatever, in train stations, on the sidewalk. Um, there was a horrifying incident down in Texas where uh, a family, an Asian family, who were actually uh, immigrants from Burma, uh, were attacked with a knife. Uh, this young man uh, stabbed them, including two small children, um, and said that this was because he blamed them for the coronavirus. Um, most cases are more along the lines of verbal harassment, um, race, racist slurs, um, telling people of Asian descent that it's your, it's, you know, it's your fault that this, this pandemic is happening, uh, things like that. So you got an overall dangerous situation, right? You have a desperate administration of a president who has never had a majority, a plurality president, who therefore can only win by dividing. And coming out of a party and representing it that has built its power on divide and conquer, right? Dog whistle politics and not dog whistle. Trump has proven it doesn't have to have a dog whistle. It can be very audible, right? Particularly in terms of his immigration policy. Uh, you have a military industrial complex that has an interest in having a Cold War with China, which of course puts you in danger of a hot war with China. You have a rising power in China. We should kind of talk about China's role in this. You know, the Soviet Union, you needed two to tango. They did all sorts of stuff, right, as well to play into it. Uh, you know, they had to have the H-bomb. They tried the Cuban missiles, right? In the 1970s, under-realized, under they undermined Carter's attempt to reset American foreign policy by deciding to uh, expand in Africa and to invade uh, Afghanistan uh, when Brezhnev had no capacity to do so, and the country was falling apart. He didn't need any wars, but uh, just showed that. So they're, so we're going to have two powers uh, that think this way. And by the way, I know you know this with an international relations background, one of the most dangerous situations in any international context, according to international relations scholars, if you look at it historically, is a rising power challenging a power that is losing power, relatively speaking. So now that's not Pax Americana anymore. And that's partly our fault. We've destroyed the capacity of this country in many ways. The elite has for its own short-term profit and, it, and just looting of the country in many ways. But you have a situation that's already dangerous with China wanting to uh, win its recognition and challenge our power. And then you add this to it. You add this blame for the pandemic, the racism. So I think it's a danger. I want you to comment how dangerous that situation is a little more just in overall. But then also... I think we should get to, and you know, this is a big question. We have a whole segment to talk about it. What we can do, we can't convince Trump to do anything different, but it seems like Biden and mainline Democrats is our only chance to like leverage them to have a different position than say the Cold War position is say of the, you know, Kennedy administration or the Johnson administration. Yeah, I think uh, 
we are in a very dangerous, dangerous situation, and the Chinese government is certainly playing its part. Uh, we need to understand that both the Chinese and the U.S. governments right now are run by right-wing nationalists uh, who will intentionally feed the flames of nationalist conflict uh, in order to uh, uh, secure uh, popular support uh, domestically. Uh, and, and they've figured out ways for that to work through their benefit. Um, we are on the verge of an extremely dangerous positive feedback loop where uh, militarism and belligerence in one country feeds the same phenomenon in the other and then back again. So, uh, you know, China's economy has taken a very severe hit, as has the American economy. Uh, and so the Chinese government uh, recently released a budget that uh, implements cuts across a wide range of uh, budget areas, with the exception of defense. Defense stands out as the one part of the Chinese government budget where they are increasing defense spending. Um, so uh, that seems uh, like a foolish thing to do in the middle of a pandemic, but the fact that we have political leaders in the United States, in the United States government, openly calling for a Cold War, uh, calling for a re-escalation of a new arms race, uh, saying that we're going to start a new arms race and then outspend the Chinese government into oblivion. Uh, that was a quote. Um, uh, that makes it seem very reasonable, maybe, for the Chinese government to say, like, you know what, we need to invest more in defense. But when the Chinese government is doing that, that then feeds into the arguments of military hawks here in the U.S. And we've got a we're going to have a fight coming up around the, the military budget for next year. And we're going to need to struggle to uh, rein in the already bloated U.S. military budget. And that's going to be made much more difficult by the fact that U.S. military hawks can point to increased defense spending in China and say, look, are you are you telling us that we're not supposed to respond to that? So it's a very dangerous uh, feedback loop between militarism in both countries. And as we saw in the Cold War, it's very easy for that to spiral out of control. I do want to point out, as Toby, you mentioned uh, the military spending, uh, that there is a group, including Mark Pocan here in Wisconsin, uh, that are leading an effort to cut military spending here so that we can properly, better properly respond to the pandemic and the real priorities of our citizens right now. Uh, we know that'll run into headwinds for all the reasons, Toby, you, you, you just talked about. Um, Toby, I, I'm hoping we could dive in a little bit um, up to sort of Robert mentioned the proper response um, in, in kind of before we do that. Um, one of the things that happened earlier this year that we're concerned about is how uh, Biden is responding. And in, in Biden had an ad earlier this year that played into essentially this dangerous rhetoric could you please tell our listeners a little bit more if they haven't seen the ad or didn't see the ad, what 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 the ad was and why what we need to do and how we need to lean into and we can get into this in the final segment and talk more about what progressives around the country need to be doing in terms of as Robert said how do we get Democrats to lean into the right response and how do we 
actively try to get them to not do what they did in this ad um, and not go down this road because it's a it's a losing path. But could you tell our listeners more about that ad? Yeah, so this ad is uh, Biden's unprepared ad. It was the first attack ad on Trump that he released after he secured the nomination with uh, Bernie dropping out. Um, and it uh, attacked Trump for mishandling the COVID-19 crisis. But the argument is made is that uh, Trump's biggest error was being too soft on China for rolling over, uh, quote unquote, uh, on China. Um, and uh, one of the specific uh, criticisms that it made was that China's travel restriction on or Trump's, that Trump's China travel restriction on China was uh, too lenient and that 40,000 pe people traveled from China to the U.S. Uh, even after the travel restrictions. Um, so uh, those 40,000 people uh, were by and large U.S. citizens. They were U.S. citizens who were in China who returned to the country. They should be allowed to return to the country, clearly. Um, and uh, this is also just absolutely the wrong criticism to make uh, of Trump. Um, we know based on how uh, the uh, with actually the majority of the outbreak having come via travelers from Europe and not via China, we know that a more strict uh, travel ban on China would not have saved us. Um, there are much uh, more valid and scientifically correct criticisms to make of Trump's COVID-19 response and accusing him of being too soft on China has nothing to do with the real problems uh, that we saw in the Trump administration. We are going to dive into really what we need to do and continue to talk about what progressives need to do to make sure that we actually pursue the right policies towards China right after this break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we went to break, we were talking about uh, the Biden ad uh, that basically played into all of the white nationalist uh, scapegoating images of China as somehow uh, the problem behind COVID and not being tough enough. Um, and People's Action and a number of other groups um, let Biden know and the campaign know that that was not the right approach. Toby, I'd like you to lead us in a conversation this last segment on just really what we ought to as progressives, and a lot of our listeners are progressive activists throughout the state. Um, what what ought to we be focusing on and how can we play a productive role um, both locally uh, in engaging in this and holding our leaders to, you know, to, to, to count on this? Yeah, so I think there's um, two closely related things uh, that uh, progressives need to do in response to this China baiting and rise in anti-China sentiment. Uh, so one is uh, the work of uh, anti-racism in building multiracial solidarity uh, to, to make intentional efforts to refuse to allow uh, the right-wing nationalists and white supremacists to to do their divide and conquer game on us. <clears throat> the other is, uh, I think, to counter with uh, a very clear message about the need for uh, global cooperation. Um, so there's a recent uh, poll uh, by Political and Morning Consult, which I think was released just last week, uh, which found that uh, 
So first of all, anti-China sentiment is rising. Uh, it has risen sharply since just January. Um, um, but despite that, a strong majority of voters in this poll, uh, by, by a 28-point margin, support um, cooperating with China to beat this crisis rather than confronting China. So given a choice between cooperating, working together with China to beat COVID-19 or confronting China, uh, by 28-point margin, the voters who were polled said, no, we need to cooperate with China. So that message of international cooperation, um, I think that when you focus on people's real needs in this moment, it is just common sense. Um, and uh, that is uh, a key narrative that uh, I think progressives uh, can and should lead with uh, to counter uh, the anti-China messages uh, coming from the right. Um, so that, for example, um, one thing we're recommending uh, is uh, when Republicans attack Democrats for uh, being too soft on China. Uh, and we know that this is um, a messaging strategy that the Republican Party leadership is recommending to all Republican candidates that they attack their Democratic opponents uh, for being too soft on China. Um, I think uh, the response from progressives can be uh, both to call out the racism uh, and also uh, to um, lead with the need for international cooperation, because that's what is actually going to help people and keep people safe and meet our real needs. So, Toby, I think that's right on. If you think of this historically, there was a moment after the Cold War where a post-Cold War internationalism with international cooperation was imagined, and there were a lot of writing about it. And it never fully materialized. Bill Clinton decided he was going to fund the military as part of the new Democrat kind of compromise, even though there was no purpose. And then Republicans found a new a new war, and that was the war on terror, so and so, a really war on Middle Easterners, right? Dangerous and and a religion, one of the great world religions, right? And so uh, you had that, and they've been looking for a, a new enemy all along and have thought China might work out. And then Democrats falling into not being wanting to be like out China'd, right, so to speak, and having a lot of power and campaign contributions behind that. So part of it is we need to actually get to that idea of international cooperation, which goes way back to the Democratic Party. I mean, it goes back to Woodrow Wilson's vision, despite Woodrow Wilson's faults. He did want a whole new global world order and nearly got it. Uh, so it was one of the great almosts in history as far as World War II. The League Nations, as Wilson conceived it, if it had been ratified, probably prevents World War II and the rise of Hitler, actually. It's probably the only thing that could have. But that be that as it be that as it may, uh, we we have this situation where this is the only thing you could do in a multipolar world. It's not going to be an American dominated world, though America will continue to be a major power if we don't continue to give away our power. Our complete lack of reaction to the pandemic is a sign that we're decaying as a country, that we're acting like a third world country when we have first world resources, right? So it's one thing if you're a poor country. You know, what is Mexico to do? I'm not saying they're handling it well, but my goodness, they have all everything stacked against a, low, a poorer country. Uh, we have no excuse other than ourselves, right? And right wing, modern right wing ideology. But then the Democrats have got to be an alternative. But here's what I think. I, and I'm going to write about this at some point, hopefully soon. I actually think 
that we've got to a point where there are two parties, the Democrat Party, and this is a parliamentary system, they'd be separate parties. And I actually think the only way for Biden to be safe and winning is basically a coalition government. So he needs a VP, and he needs personnel administration that are from the progressive party within the Democratic Party. And the only way he's going to put this together, he can't go back to the old Cold War foreign policy. He's going to divide the party, whether he knows it or not. And he needs to unify the party. So it seems to me the leverage is because they have greater, the mainline Democrats, conception of that than Hillary's team did, but not as much as they need to, to put up a fight enough along the grounds you're saying, and the idea also more broadly about racism, that those who divide us are simply trying to hold power, right, and take things away from us. In other words, what you see in the race class narrative, but, you know, people, you and I, Toby, we've been uh, dealing, thinking about that kind of a rhetoric before the race class narrative was invented. It's just, just another version of it, but it's all true, right? And so, it seems like we have leverage if, if, if progressives will, right now, especially when Biden is not named a running mate, really needs all of us, that we have tremendous leverage that we have to unify always a problem on the left and use. Let us see your thoughts on that. Right. That uh, like we need our, our, our principles to have some kind of uh, life and role in uh, hopefully a future Biden administration some, like there needs to be a clear critique of uh, the military hawks uh, in this March to a new Cold War uh, in the Biden administration. I think um, I think there's this idea within the Biden campaign that this sort of belligerent anti-Chinese rhetoric that they're using in the campaign is they're just going to use this to win the election, and then once they get into into power, they're going to behave like responsible adults. Um, and I think this is not realistic, the sentiments that you, you, you um, propagate in the voting population during the campaign are, are going to matter uh, over the long term. Um, and if they're working in, a, in effect uh, together with the Trump, the Trump campaign to uh, maximize this anti-China sentiment, um, it's going to lead us in a dangerous direction. Um, and, uh, you know, this militarism can spiral out of control. Um, and if you had a Biden administration that had fed into that, um, and then at some point wants to pull back at a point when it's become too late, um, that's not good for the administration, it's not good for the country. This is, this is a unique opportunity for this country to make fundamental progressive arguments about international cooperation and about obviously anti-racism and the idea that we all need each other in order to solve this problem. And it's probably a unique opportunity where we can actually make, Pocan and company can make legitimate arguments that we need to de-invest in defense in order to invest in the real problem. We need public health investments. And that is where Biden and company needs to go. They need to stay sharp on the real culprit, and that is the lack of a public health infrastructure. And we ought to be investing in that. We ought to be talking about how do we get people covered? How do we have a real plan for testing and tracing in this country in order to get serious about it? And it needs to be an internationally based plan that is not based on racism and scapegoating. The, the most appalling thing about that ad um, is the fact that it is, not only is it just 
play into racism. It's not even accurate, right? Like as you brought out, Toby, it's not. The, it was almost like, hey, we're going to throw this stinking pile of poop into this ad. It's not at all factual, even if um, Trump is mis. It's accurate that he's mishandling the crisis. They throw out this thing that has no basis in fact. Uh, and it's being mishandled because there's no plan for real public health and federal response to this. It's being kicked to the states to figure it out and to compete with each other. So, Toby, we want to we want to thank you, first of all, for for leading on thinking about this within people's action and 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 just nationally. It's really important for our movement. But want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thanks so much, Toby. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This by the way, Toby, if people are interested in uh, getting in touch with you or want to follow up with you, do you have a way for folks to reach you or uh, any suggestions that people would like to get more information or get involved? Uh, sure. We have a website, uh, justiceisglobal.org. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Justice is Global is on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter as well. Um, Check them out, folks. Uh, we're going to have to pull away, though. Thanks again, Toby. Really appreciate it. Uh, and as always, we want to thank our producer, Brian Woldridge, who makes the Battleground Wisconsin happen every week. We will see you next week from Wisconsin. Wisconsin.